my friends. Welcome to another edition of Corbett Report Radio. And of course, I am your host, James Corbett from CorbettReport.com. That's CorbettReport.com, C-O-R-B-E-T-T, Report.com. And of course, I'd like to welcome you back to another edition of our radio program, broadcasting to you tonight via the auspices of Republic Broadcasting and blasting out of KHFX 1140 AM. So welcome, one and all, to this broadcast, wherever, whenever, and however you might be listening to my voice. Let me just start off tonight by saying thank you so much to all of you who have taken the time to go to CorbettReport.com and to contact me to give me your feedback about this radio show. I've received a lot of positive feedback so far, and that's really, really exciting. So thank you to all of you out there for that, and really without your support in all sorts of ways, I just wouldn't be able to do this. So I do thank you for taking the time to invest your your mental energies in trying to expand your horizons with some of the information that we go through on a, every single weekday night here on Corporate Report Radio. And I know that sometimes it is not the most positive or uplifting message, but I hope tonight we can change that a little bit. Because I think to anyone who's been watching the news, of course what we've been seeing is a long, slow, steady build-up to a general state of war. And if you were looking for times in which there are wars and rumors of wars, I think this would qualify very well, unfortunately. Not only have we seen what transpired in Libya with the first demonization and then the bombing of that country in the name of protecting its civilian population by Obama, Prince of Peace Prize himself. Well, now, unfortunately, we see the same buildup happening in Syria, and unfortunately, it looks like it's about to start happening in Iran. We have lots of headlines along those lines from uh, the Daily Mail. We have Iran is ready for war. Tehran vows to retaliate if Israel and the West attack nuclear plants. We have Press TV, UK Army Chief secretly visits Tel Aviv. That does not bode well. Uh, We have another one from the Mail Online. UK and US draw up joint plan to attack Iran. Evidence of nuclear program raises tension in Middle East. So we see this demonization. We see the buildup. We see a lot of this very same tricks and things being played on our population right now in the exact same way they were to try to convince us that it was it was our duty to go in and bomb Libya because that was going to save them from that evil tyrant. Well, as we come to the brink of the precipice and we start veering over the edge and we start looking at the abyss below because a state of general warfare with Iran and drawing in China and Russia cannot be good for the peoples of the world, we have to ask what is the way forward. Well, tonight is Friday and from this point on, on Friday nights, we're going to have a special Friday night highlight edition of the radio broadcast where I highlight an interview from CorbettReport.com or a video or other work from CorbettReport.com that you may have missed over the preceding weeks, even if you are a Corbett Report subscriber. So I'm going to play this evening the interview that I conducted recently with Paul K. Chappelle, an Iraq War veteran and uh, also a peace activist. A very interesting, very, very fascinating conversation, and this was recorded back on October 26th of this year. And you can go and download the whole conversation and uh, listen to it in high quality from CorbettReport.com. But Paul K. Chappelle, as I say, he's an Iraq War veteran, and he uh, left active service in 2009 as a captain in the U.S. Army. 
but uh, he has since gone on to start peace activism work and trying to spread a message of peace. Uh, you can find uh, his Nuclear Age Peace Foundation, of which he's a member, at wagingpeace.org, or his own personal website where you can see the books that he's written on this subject is Paul K. Chappelle. That's C-H-A-P-P-E-L-L dot com. So we'll, uh, I'll suggest you go there to start taking a look at what he's done. But when we come back from this break, we'll go right into the conversation with tonight's guest, Paul K. Chappelle. to this Friday night edition of Corbett Report Radio. Of course, I am your host, James Corbett from CorbettReport.com, and it's great to have you back this evening. And this evening we have a special Friday night edition in which we're highlighting some of my work from the Corbett Report, just in case you didn't hear it the first time around, or just in case you've never been to CorbettReport.com. I want to take a moment to highlight some of the best stuff from there. And we're going to start off this evening with a an interview that I recently conducted with a very interesting man, Paul K. Chappelle of paulkchappelle.com. That's Paul K. C H A P P E L L.com. He's a graduate from West Point and he did serve a tour in Baghdad in 2006. He left active duty in the U.S. Army in 2009 as a captain. And since then, he's been writing books and giving lectures on how to end war and wage peace. So let's get straight into this interview. Well, this is your first time on the program, obviously, so I'm sure there are many listeners who might not be familiar with you or your work. So perhaps you can introduce yourself to us and uh, what it is that you do. Well, I was in the Army for seven years. I went to West Point, and now I'm the Peace Leadership Director for the Nuclear Ace Peace Foundation. And I focus a lot on ending war, peace activism, and how do we actually make the world better? What are the actual steps and what's the actual process for actually making the world better? Well, that's a, that's a pretty tall order, I think, for uh, for anyone to take. But um, but I, I guess let, let's start with the, the rather pr- provocative title, Will War Ever End? And one that I, I think we desperately need to answer in, in the coming years, but... Um, uh, I guess there were, I'm sure you get a lot of people asking you about the fundamental assumption of that title and asking you, should war ever end? So what is your response to that type of uh, questioning? Well, the question with war is, the reason people believe in war is they believe that war provides a, an effective security paradigm, that war is the best method for making our country safe, making our planet safe, and protecting our children and protecting our freedom. And so what I'm really offering is not so much an anti-war message, although that's a big part of it, but a better solution other than war. Because I think that if you tell people, well, just don't go to war, then people get very threatened. Because if they believe that war protects their family and their freedom and their children, then in their mind you're putting their family and their freedom and their children at risk. So we have to actually offer a better alternative to war. And I think the better alternative is actually nonviolent methods. I think that in the 21st century, we are in a very unique opportunity in human history to actually have a new paradigm that can not only make our country safer, but our planet much safer. And it'll be much more cost-effective as well, where the trillions of dollars we're spending on war could actually be used to help the American people instead of being wasted overseas. 
Well, that is uh, one of the best answers to that question that I think I've ever heard. So um, my hat's off to you for that, because I think it, <clears throat> it is important to get people to realize that it's in their own self-interest to, to end war. And uh, once they get to that point, then I think it is a question of when can we make it end. So so I guess that is a, a pretty big question. And will war ever end? And of course, it's uh, becoming more and more important as our technology, unfortunately, uh, our technology of killing improves and improves. So so what can you say about where we are as, as a species, as a society as a civilization heading and hurtling towards an unfortunate end if we don't end our wayward ways? Oh, that's a really good question. So I can bring up a couple of really quick things. I think that I think we're living in a really amazing time. If you look 500 years ago, there were no democracies on the planet. If you look 200 years ago, how many democracies were in the world? Well, Napoleon was dictator in France. Haiti, after their revolution, had a series of monarchs and dictators. The Iroquois Confederation didn't have universal right to vote. So the only democracy in the world 200 years ago was America. But America wasn't a democracy if you were female. America wasn't a democracy if you were African-American. It wasn't a democracy if you were Native American, Hispanic. It wasn't a democracy if you were white, because you couldn't vote in most places unless you owned land. And so we've had dramatic progress. Last 200 years, now we have democracies all over the world, and 200 years ago, things such as women's rights and civil rights, those concepts virtually didn't exist. The idea of women's rights, civil rights, and even human rights is a primarily an 18th century idea. So you look at America now. I mean, my father was half white, half black, so my ancestors were slaves, and my father grew up under segregation. And if an American president went up today and said, well, I think we should bring back slavery and bring back segregation, and we shouldn't let women vote or own property. People would look at him like he's insane. So why can't we create a future where 10 or 20 or 30 years from now, if an American president says, oh, I think we should bomb people, and I think that we should have nuclear weapons, people say, what, what is this person, this person li living in the 20th century, what is this person thinking? But we have to do that through changing attitudes, the same way that Martin Luther King Jr., Frederick Douglass, Susan B. Anthony, Mark Twain, Thoreau, Gandhi, all these people changed human attitudes toward very controversial issues. And war now is a very controversial issue. And it also hinges upon human security, which makes it very frightening to people to even talk about. So I really think that future is possible because the same way we change attitudes towards the oppression of women and slavery, why can't we change attitudes toward war and nuclear weapons and other issues? Well, it's a good question and, and one that we have to be asking, and, and I'm glad that you are. But obviously working in the American context and, and America where it is in this current historical context, I mean, this is quite a, a controversial topic and one that obviously brings a lot of emotions to the table. So so what can you say about dealing with the, the types of emotions that this, these questions raise? Well, I think that one way I deal with the emotions is it's all about how you frame the discussion with people. So, for example... If Martin Luther King Jr. says that we should get rid of segregation, I mean, first of all, we have to keep in mind that when you challenge someone's worldview, they'll respond as if you're attacking their physical body because every, uh, every creature on the planet needs certain physical conditions to survive, but human beings also require certain psychological conditions to survive. And if you lose your worldview, you'll go insane. And this is why you can't talk religion and politics with most people because if you talk religion and politics and you threaten someone's worldview they become very aggressive, very hostile. People will fight you over a political or religious discussion. People get very aggressive. But there's a way to 
there's a way to not directly attack their worldview, and the way you do that is you tie a new idea into their existing worldview. So when Martin Luther King Jr. said that segregation should go away, that challenged everything that people had ever been taught in the South, that you need segregation, you can't have races intermingling, you can't have interracial marriage. And so the way that Martin Luther King Jr. was able to tie that into into their existing worldview was he said, hey, what about the Declaration of Independence? All men are created equal. That's what I'm trying to make into a reality. And people in America, the Declaration of Independence is a part of their worldview. And another thing he did, too, was he compared his struggle to the Hebrew struggle for liberation from the Egyptians. And a lot of people in the South, they were Christians. And the idea of nonviolence is very radical. I mean, nonviolence was extremely radical. When in history have people used nonviolence? And if he talks about Gandhi, I mean, Gandhi's an Indian, so people in the South and Americans and African Americans especially who are under oppression, many of them wanted to use violence. So if he says we should use violence, that's outside of their worldview. And he says Gandhi, and people go, well, he's Indian, why should we do what an Indian guy does? So the way that Martin Luther King Jr. was able to tie nonviolence into their worldview was he said, look, this is the philosophy of Jesus put into action. So many African Americans in the South, they were Christians, and he goes, this is the philosophy of Jesus put into action. And so I think it comes down to how do you frame the issue of war, and I begin by saying, look, my objective with this discussion and with this mission is I want America to be as safe as possible, I want the planet to be as safe as possible, and war is just not the most effective way to do it, and there's a better way to do it. And if you quote General Eisenhower, for example, who talks about the military-industrial complex, and he compares war spending to crucifixion, General Eisenhower, he is a West Point graduate, Army general, and he was a Republican president. So if you quote Eisenhower, he's kind of part of people's worldview where people can't say, well, Eisenhower's a hippie or he's a communist or he's he's a very credible figure. And you can quote all sorts of people. You can quote Martin Luther King Jr. and what he thought about war, and he's a very credible American figure. You can quote Mark Twain. You can quote various... Smedley Butler was a Marine Corps general, and at one time he was the most decorated Marine Corps... He was the most decorated Marine in Marine Corps history. So... If you tie these things to people that are respected across the political spectrum, whether you're Democrat or Republican, Martin Luther King Jr. is very respected, Eisenhower is very respected, and then we take the conversation to the level of what is the best way to actually make our country safe. And people say to me all the time, they say, well, how are you going to wake up the American people? People are apathetic, people are passive. How are you going to wake up the American people? And I say, look, I don't have to wake up the American people. Reality is going to wake up the American people for me. I mean, if you do a poll and ask Americans, is the country going in the right direction or the wrong direction, overwhelmingly people think it's going in the wrong direction. And we have massive unemployment, we're going bankrupt, and we have to show the American people, look, the reason that we're going bankrupt, the reason our economy is being strangled, the reason we're having all these problems is not because of immigrants, it's not because of teachers, it's because of the war system and greed and corruption and all this, all these things we can change as American citizens. Once again, this is Corbett Report Radio, and we are talking to Paul K. Chappelle of paulkchappelle.com. That's paulkchappelle.com. 
And this is a highlight of an interview that I conducted last week on CorbettReport.com. So you can, of course, go there to download the full interview with Paul K. Chappelle and listen to it in high quality. And uh, Paul K. Chappelle, of course, is the author of many books, including Peaceful Revolution, The End of War, and Will War Ever End? all of which are available through his website, paulkchappelle.com, so I suggest that people go there to check that out. But right now we're coming up against the commercial break, so let's pause for a few minutes, but don't touch that dial, because we'll be right back with our conversation. Ladies and gentlemen, to Corbett Report Radio, I am your host, James Corbett of CorbettReport.com. And tonight we're talking to Paul K. Chappelle in a pre-recorded interview that was recorded last week and played on CorbettReport.com. And let's pick it up from where I ask Paul Chappelle about his plan for waging peace. Well, I think we have, the first thing we have to recognize is the fact that presidents are always reactionary. If you look at... President Johnson. President Johnson didn't care about civil rights when he came into office. That wasn't his priority, but he gave in the pressure from the civil rights movement. If you look at Woodrow Wilson, who signed, a, if you look at Woodrow Wilson, he didn't care about women's rights when he came into office, but he was pressured by the women's rights movement to prioritize that issue. In fact, he was adamantly opposed to women's rights when he came into office, and for for a long, large part of his of his term as president. If you look at Roosevelt, Franklin Roosevelt didn't care about workers' rights when they came into office, but he was pressured by the workers' rights movement. If you look at Lincoln, Lincoln wasn't an abolitionist when he came into office, but he was pressured by the abolitionist movement. And so all the change comes from grassroots movements. If you look at the checks and balances you learn about in elementary school, judiciary, legislative, executive branches, the one thing you aren't taught is the importance of social movements. And all this change, if you look at all the visionaries throughout American history, Susan B. Anthony, Alice Paul, Frederick Douglass, Mark Twain, Henry David Thoreau, Martin Luther King Jr., they primarily come from people's movements, and they have to pressure the politicians through nonviolent methods to affect change. And we're taught in our society, well, the voting is the end-all, be-all of democracy. You vote, vote every couple of years and then shut up after you're done voting and you're a good citizen. But if you look at the majority of change in America, the majority of change in America came from people with limited to no voting rights. The women in America couldn't even vote, and they were able to achieve the right to vote. They were able to achieve the right to own property, all these various rights that people take for granted with little to no voting rights. You look at African Americans, little to no voting rights, and they were able to achieve enormous change because voting is just one tool in in the Democratic toolbox. You have voting, which is an important tool, but you also have boycotting, protesting, all these various things you can do, nonviolent action. And I think that we have to show the American people, look, democracy is so much more than just voting. Voting is very important, and it's a very cherished way of, it's a very effective, cherished way of promoting change, but it's not the only way. You can't build a house just with a hammer. You need all sorts of tools to build a house. So we have to look at voting as just one tool to build a house. And there's all sorts of other tools we have to use. 
I think that's right, and I think that uh, that comes up very much in our in our modern context, especially right at this moment with all of these uh, Occupy Wall Street type protests springing up all across America and really all across the world as people really start um, trying to flex their political muscles at least a little bit to see what uh, what kinds of changes can be brought about. And of course, always in that conversation, there are people who are uh, saying that violence will be the only way to to bring that change about. But um, but of course, we have to combat that mentality that, that unfortunately creeps up in times like these. So what can you say about the modern uh, political context with, with uh, so much mass uh, protest happening at the moment? Is this an opportunity for, for peace? Well, yeah, I think that one of the most dangerous things is the nonviolent movements now descending into violence because they will be destroyed if they descend into violence. There's a really renowned activist, his name's Blaise Bonpain, and he said, whenever anyone in your movement advocates violence, always assume they're a government agent. Because the government wants you to use violence. The government has a history of putting people in movements, agents who advocate violence. And the reason the government wants you to use violence is that's their, I mean, that's their strength. If the people who advocate violence within the movement, they don't understand violence. They don't understand it. I knew a guy who was in the army, and he got out of the army. He was in Iraq, and there were a couple of young, young guys in this area, and they told him, hey, we want to form a militia. That way, if the U.S. government come, gets out of hand, we can attack the government with our militia. And he said, look, if you try to fight the American government with violence, they are going to wipe you off the face of the earth. The American government, I mean, think about it. The American government controls the Army, Navy, Air Force, Marines, National Guard, FBI, CIA, police. If you hit them with violence, they are going to just wipe you out because that's their strength, that's what they know, and in their own country they have home field advantage. So they have the apparatus there, they have home field advantage, and they're going to crush you. That's why Martin Luther King Jr., one reason he didn't use it was it wouldn't have been effective. If you would have had a race war between the blacks and the whites in America, the whites would have won. They just they controlled all the me- all the mechanisms of, of violence. And one thing governments do is governments they, they try to monopolize the use of violence. So the government has a monopoly on the use of violence. So what you have to use is you, is you have to use nonviolent methods. And there's actually a military strategic reason behind that. One thing you learn in military strategy, one thing you learn is you never confront your opponent where they're strongest. You always confront them where they're weakest. So what Martin Luther King Jr. realized was where the American government is strongest is violence, where they are weakest is moral authority. So if you confront them with moral authority, what can they really do? You're protesting on Wall Street, you're protesting across America, and how can the government deal with you now? If the government uses uses violence against you, now they actually make you more popular because they attack you with fire hoses or police dogs like they did in the Civil Rights Movement, and now the public will sympathize with you. Or they attack you the way they attacked the bonus marchers who were World War One veterans protesting in D.C. and the American public will sympathize. Or they put you in jail, like Mandela or Gandhi, and then it creates global outrage. So you put the government in a very precarious situation where they don't know how to deal with you. You use nonviolent methods. You're being effective. You're winning people over to your viewpoint. And how do they deal with you now? This is Corbett Report Radio with our guest, Paul K. Chappelle. Don't touch that dial. We'll be right back after this. You're listening to the Republic Broadcasting Network. Because you can handle the truth.
back, friends. Welcome back to Corbett Report Radio. I'm your host, James Corbett, coming to you tonight via the auspices of the Republic Broadcasting Network. And tonight we're featuring an interview with Paul K. Chappelle, former Iraq war vet and current peace activist. And let's pick it up from where we left off just before the break, where we were talking about the moral authority of the people in this campaign for waging peace. Well, unfortunately, I, I think there are lots of uh, ways for them to deal with, with people like that these days, um, and I think they've developed them over the decades, confronting people like King. And, of course, it involves um, smear campaigns and all sorts of dirty tricks um, in order to try to undermine that moral authority. Oh, absolutely. The government, they are... Oh, I'm really glad you brought that up, because they are a lot more clever than we give them credit for. So here's how they dealt with for example, the anti-war movement. They learned from the Vietnam War. And one thing I hear people say, I hear them say, well, the government never learns anything. If the government would have learned from Vietnam, we would have never gone to Afghanistan and Iraq. But the fact that we went to Iraq and Afghanistan was precisely because the U.S. government learned so much from Vietnam. So here's what they learned. The first thing they learned was get rid of the draft. Because as long as you have a draft going on, you're never, going to, again, going to have a major overseas long-term war with major combat operations. Get rid of the draft. You have to embed journalists in military units. You privatize the military, which reduces the number of dead soldiers because people don't count dead contractors. And the fourth thing you do is you have this campaign telling people if you don't support the war, you don't support the troops. So all that was in effect prior to the Iraq War, and it was very effective. And you're right, smear campaigns. That's a very effective technique, and because they can't kill you. I mean, we have to understand why the South African government didn't kill Mandela. They knew they couldn't kill him. It's like that quote in Star Wars where, where Darth Vader kills Obi-Wan Kenobi, and right before Darth Vader kills Obi-Wan Kenobi, Obi-Wan Kenobi, he says, you can't win, Darth. If you strike me down, I'll become more powerful than you can possibly imagine. And you look throughout history, you kill Jesus, becomes more powerful, you kill Socrates, he becomes more powerful, you kill King, you kill Gandhi, and now they become these symbols and they never go away. That's why the South African government put Mandela in prison. But now they know that if they put you in prison, you become more popular. If you look at Aung San Suu Kyi, who was on house arrest, so you're right, smear campaign, that's the way to go. And even if you don't do anything wrong, they'll just make up stuff that you did wrong. And if they accuse you of something horrendous, part of it will stick. So you're absolutely right about that. Well, unfortunately so, and only because I've been studying all these types of uh, campaigns and dirty tricks for a long time myself, and I know how they work. And, and to me, it seems that one of the really only effective ways of combating that is to, is to scrap the idea that we need leaders to, to be the spokespeople for this movement. I think a leaderless resistance is one that can't be infiltrated, and it can't be smeared, and it can't be um, easily stopped in any way. But uh, it raises the question of whether such a leaderless uh, grassroots resistance is really possible. Oh, you're absolutely right. I've been saying this for the past few years, that the next movement to be effective, it has to, it, it can't have, the day when you had Gandhi or King, I think movements are more effective now in this era if they don't have a leader who is of that level. I think movements actually need lots of leaders, lots and lots and lots and lots of leaders who were very effective. It's kind of like in the Army. The Army has this 
focus of decentralized command where every lower-level officer, lieutenant, captain, sergeant, if everyone else gets wiped out, they have the skills and the resources and the knowledge and the expertise to be effective. They don't need to take every order from the general because if they're on their own, something terrible happens. If their commander dies, for example, they have the expertise and knowledge to be effective. So making the Army focuses a lot on small unit leadership. And it's extremely effective because it's very hard to smear somebody because everybody is decentralized and everybody is effective. But I think it's very important that the people have a shared vision and a shared strategy. There's no overarching leader, but people are working across this almost like a symphony where people are working with similar vision, similar strategy. And one thing I do is I teach this peace leadership training because I think that the future movements will need lots and lots and lots of leaders. But I think that people also have to be operating in sync with each other, and I think that has to do a lot with vision and strategy. So, Well, I, I very much agree with all of that, but again, I think they're probably thinking two or three steps ahead of us when um, really the, the modern paradigm is the war on terror narrative that they've crafted over the last decade, decade and a half, and, and really what that seems to indicate to me is that the new target is is basically anyone, any group that's demonized um, that tries to act out in a decentralized way like that, uh, like what you've been describing, will be deemed terrorists. I mean, there are terrorist cells and an insurgency, and um, there is, I, I think, a framework now set up for for dealing with that. And unfortunately, as of course we've seen in America in, in recent years, that that dragnet for the, uh, the war on terror really encompasses and en- encapsulates everyone. There's no one who can really escape that, uh, that label if, if the government so chooses to use it. Right. That's why you're so right on with that. That is why the movement cannot use violence. If the activist movements now use violence, they will be crushed because they can be labeled as terrorist groups. If they use any violence, they're going to be crushed and wiped out. And that's why the military has a general. The military has a, a NATO commander or supreme allied commander who's issuing orders. I think these movements need shared vision shared strategy and people operating in sync with each other. I think that people can't just be doing whatever because they might not be effective and that might actually be counterproductive. And if I were the government, I know what I would do. I would put somebody in the movement who would advocate violence and commit violence, and then you can label every activist group as a terrorist network and you can just go after them with a ruthless force. And you can you have justification now because you're arguing, well, we have to do this in terms of self-defense and national security. That's why I think it's so important that these movements do not become violent. And that is the quickest way to destroy the movement. And if I were the government, I shouldn't say if I were the government, because there are good people in government, hmm. and government can't be effective. But if I were the kind of people who were trying to oppress this movement, I would not just smear campaign, but the quickest way to stop it is to have somebody in the movement blow something up. 
Unfortunately so. I mean, it's, it's, it's very easy for them to derail the best laid plans simply by, by infiltrating and becoming part of the group or seeming to become part of the group. And, and that question, I mean, it's, not, it's certainly not just theoretical. We've seen it happen time and time again. And um, I, myself, I'm a Canadian citizen, so I think back to Montebello in 2007 where people were peacefully protesting against the uh, SPP meeting, the Security and Prosperity Partnership meeting that was taking place uh, there. And, um, and the, it, it later came out it was admitted at the time they were accused that there were two people in the in the crowd who were carrying rocks and coming up menace, menacingly to the police line as if they were going to start throwing them and um and they were later outed and, and admitted to be part of the Quebec Provincial Police, who had um, who were just there to observe things, of course, right? Um, so, so of course, we've seen this happen time and time again in protests of um, of provocateurs starting violence in order to get the police reaction, in order to create the type of spectacle that the news loves to cover of protests turning violent. So, so the question obviously is, how do we combat that? I mean, that's just such a, a, a difficult thing to really stop in any way. I think that's why a movement has to be very well trained. I think training is vital. The military has excellent training, and one thing I do with this peace leadership training is giving people effective, excellent training. For example, if somebody in the military walks around with their uniform messed up, everybody knows, okay, that's not how it's supposed to be. And you look at movements now, if, for example, if somebody were to go to the Occupy Wall Street protest with an anti-Semitic sign or the a sign with the N-word on it or something like that, people would know, okay, we, we don't want an anti-Semitic message. And I think that if people are trained and if people have shared vision and shared strategy, the movement can police itself. So as soon as anyone starts to advocate violence, there's warning bells that go off in people's minds. So the only way violence can really work in this movement is if some sort of teamwork is involved where one group actually does the violence, agrees to it. But if everybody's well-trained, if everybody has the shared vision, if everybody is strategic-minded, then they self-police themselves. So one person will, for example, advocate violence, and everybody else goes, oh, wait a minute, we can't be doing this. And I'll give you a, a good example. I was talking to a friend of mine who's been doing a lot of stuff at the Occupy LA protest. And somebody showed up to a protest with a sign that had an anti-Semitic message. And all the other protesters, they got signs, and all their signs said, we are not with this person, this person does not represent our movement. And they followed him around. And everywhere he went, they followed him around with their signs. That way, if anybody took a picture of his sign, the picture would automatically capture the other signs as well. That way, the media couldn't smear the whole movement by taking a picture of just of that sign. To take a picture of that sign, all the other signs were so close in proximity, they would capture the other signs. And that kind of coordinated effort where everybody knew instinctively, we have to stop this. And we can't phys physically kick this guy out of the protest, but we're going to write signs that say this guy is not with us and we're going to follow him around. In violence, if anyone advocates a plan like that, people, I think, could be very self-aware, very diligent, very alert, and respond to it and self-police the movement, just like civil rights, if you look at Martin Luther King Jr.'s movement or part of Gandhi's movement. 
Exactly right, and and I think um, for for anyone who watches the uh, the 2007 Montebello protest, the the footage of the police uh, officers getting called out, um, I think that that in itself serves as a valuable lesson in how to do things because uh, the the person who who identifies them and calls them out does so in a very loud and forceful way and makes sure all the other protesters know who that these people are cops and that they're uh, they're starting they're there to start violence and start something happening. So everyone surrounds them and they they don't let them get near the police line. It's it's actually quite an effective way of doing it, and eventually the police get so scared that they uh, and people start trying to take off their masks. So, so they basically just dive into the police line and get arrested, quote unquote. But later revealed to be policemen all the time. So I think, yeah, I think you're exactly right. I think there has to be some sort of awareness and, and the training for th- these types of things, which will inevitably happen in any sort of effective political protest. So I guess that brings up the question of your own work as as peace leadership director for the Nuclear Age Peace Foundation. What what kind of work do you do training people and and how often do you do this and what are some of the details of your of your day to day activities? Well, one thing I learned being in the army was just how brilliant and how effective the training is in terms of if you take the average twenty two year old army officer and look at how much they know about waging war, you take the average twenty two year old activist and how much they know about waging peace. There's a big gap. And so part of what I do is bridging that gap where I think we have to be as disciplined, as well-trained, as focused toward waging peace as people in the military are toward war. And I think that that's really going to bridge the gap between us being ineffective and us being effective toward solving these very serious problems. And I think that good intentions are not enough. Good intentions simply are not enough. If good intentions were enough, we wouldn't be having these problems. If good intentions were enough, war would have ended centuries ago. So good intentions are not enough. You have to be effective. And I think that a lot of people who protest, they just don't think about how does the other side view us. Because the purpose of any kind of protest is to convert people, to get people who were apathetic. For example, Albert Schweitzer and Martin Luther King Jr. both said that the real danger to humanity is not evil people, it's good people who do nothing, good people who are apathetic. And how can you ignite the flame in those people where they become aware and they become evolved? Or how can you at least get them to sympathize with you? So we have to have a movement that does more than preach to the choir. We can't just preach to the choir. We have to persuade people and get them involved in our cause. And we can't ever count people out. You can't think that, well... For example, Martin Luther King Jr., look at how he talked to those white races. He believed that some of those people, and Gene Sharp teaches the same thing. Gene Sharp teaches that in any oppressive system, there are people in the system who will empathize with the oppressed. Any oppressive system, there are people in that oppressive system who will empathize with the oppressed. And a good example is WikiLeaks. All the WikiLeaks stuff is being leaked by people in the government. People in the government, people in the military are leaking documents because they think the American public has to know about this. So you can't demonize the other side. You can't demonize the other side. You have to try to reach out to them and try to go beyond preaching to the choir. And training can really help people do that more effectively. Excellent. Well, uh, of course, revolution is is one of the key words now because people are are wondering if this is a revolutionary moment. But of course, all of the templates that we've been given throughout history for revolution seem to revolve around violence. We have the American Revolution or the French Revolution, and they always seem to revolve around uh, moments of violence and and war warfare of one sort or another. Um, what can you say about the the prospect of of truly peaceful revol- revolution? What does that even mean? 
Well, I think peaceful revolution actually goes back a long time. I think it goes back to Socrates. If you look at Socrates, the way that he would challenge how people thought, and he believed that you could create a revolution in human thinking in the way people thought. And I think Jesus, Buddha, Confucius, Lao Tzu, St. Francis, Tolstoy, there is a long history of nonviolent thinking and attitudes changing over time. But I think that what made Gandhi effective and what he, I really don't think what Gandhi did would have worked in the Roman Empire because what you need for Gandhi's techniques to, to work, you need flow of information. The Roman Empire didn't have a free press, but Gandhi was living in an era where there was internet, there was free press, there were international newspapers, and you had ideals such as freedom of speech, freedom of assembly, those 18th century Enlightenment ideals had begun to catch fire and spread throughout Europe and other countries. And if you look at civil rights, what made the civil rights movement effective was mass media. These people on television being blasted with fire hoses, being attacked with police dogs, and the American public felt sympathy and said, why are these people being attacked? And what's going on over there? And now everybody has a cell phone camera. I mean, everyone has a camera on their cell phone. So I think that we are living in the right moment in human history where when the Persians landed on the Greek shore at Marathon, maybe the Greeks back then had to fight the Persians off the shore because there was no mass media and the Athenians were fighting out of self-defense. But we're living in a different era now where we have the means to affect change peacefully because of mass media, because of public opinion, and because people do not want to be on camera committing violence against nonviolent people because it's really going to sway public opinion. Once again, you are tuned into Corporate Report Radio, and tonight's conversation is about waging peace, and we're talking to Iraq War veteran and peace activist Paul K. Chappelle of paulkchappelle.com. Tonight's interview was pre-recorded, and if you want to download the interview, you can go to corbettreport.com to get it in its entirety. But we're coming up against a commercial break, so let's take a few minutes rest, and we'll be right back after these messages. We're talking to Paul K. Chappelle. Once again, you can download the full interview at CorbettReport.com. But let's lead out this evening with Paul K. Chappelle, where I ask him whether or not he's optimistic about the possibility for achieving peace in our time. Well, there's been peaceful, there's been peaceful revolution if you look at the template you mentioned. For example, how many European countries had a war to free the slaves? Not a single European country had a war to free the slaves. The first nonviolent mass movements were in Europe, 18th, 19th century, to abolish slavery. And Thomas Clarkson, the Quakers, many activists began to do massive protests and petitioning and campaign posters. Many of the things that we do today originated in the 18th and 19th century in Europe. And you have, for example, in America, the founding fathers said no taxation without representation. And what that means, of course, is that you cannot tax me unless you give me a vote. You can't control me unless you give me participation in the political process. That's a very reasonable grievance. 
But up until the 1820s and 1830s, 50 years after the Revolutionary War, less than 10% of the American population could vote. Women couldn't vote. African Americans couldn't vote. White people couldn't vote in most places unless they owned land. But how did the women get the right to vote and own property? They did it through nonviolent struggle, through waging peace. Susan B. Anthony and the women's rights movement. If you look at how did the non-landowners get the right to vote, how do we get workers' rights, how do we get child labor laws, and if you look at the Civil War, the Civil War kept the Union together, but it took a peaceful movement in the 1950s and 1960s before African Americans truly got their human rights, because what it comes down to is you have to win hearts and minds, and Martin Luther King Jr. was able to win hearts and minds and change attitudes toward race in ways the Civil War was unable to do. And so we do have a long track record of nonviolent movements being effective. Look at Nelson Mandela. Look at Archbishop Desmond Tutu. Look now at the Arab Spring. So I think that we do have a very proud tradition, a long track record. Look at Frederick Douglass. Look at all these various Americans who also use nonviolent methods. Americans that we really, Martin Luther King Jr., Frederick Douglass, Susan B. Anthony, Americans that we really honor today are part of this tradition. Well, that is such a hopeful message, and I'm glad that you put that in its proper context, because I think often we're given the, the, the historical context that, uh, that the, the, um, the powers that shouldn't be want to give us in order to, to put us in that, that sort of violent warfare type context where, where everything, our liberties came from war, from waging in Amer you know, the American Revolution or something along those lines. But, but it is important to look back to the historical precedents that are, that are in the exact contrary direction, and I think there is, a vast and rich uh, vein of history that's, that's still there to be tapped, and I think people need to really start constructing that um, that context for themselves. So tell us about the Nuclear Age Peace Foundation. Well, our mission is to abolish nuclear weapons and to empower peace leaders, and empowering peace leaders is what I'm really focused on in terms of giving people training and effective training that can get them to just be more effective in solving these problems, because if you look at all the human problems, all the human problems comes from how people think. Racism, oppression of women, segregation, slavery, war, oppression, injustice. And all change comes from changing how people think. That's how all change happens. That's why if somebody were running for office today and said that we should bring back slavery and bring back segregation and not let women vote their own property, people would look at the person like he's insane. It's because attitudes have changed. And we have to be effective at changing how people think about issues and how changing how people see their own humanity and their place in the global community. And we have to have a new consciousness, a new awareness of our place as members of the global human family. That's it for tonight. Thank you for tuning in to Corbett Report Radio, and thank you for all the feedback that I'm getting. Take care, guys, and I'll see you next week.